Wednesday. We thank you for bringing this community together and giving us family to, to live in, to grow in, to serve in, and to be served in. And so help us, Lord, as we think a little more deeply about this so that we might honor you as we continue to grow and expand and hopefully be of an influence in this community. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to begin, uh, let's turn that down a little bit, okay. Uh, begin with Matthew 10, 34 through 39. Do not think, Jesus said, that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be those of his own household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who finds his life will lose it. And he who loses his life for my sake will find it. Amen. We tend, uh, or, or when we get this backwards, uh, we end up hurting our families. When we put our families ahead of Christ, we end up hurting our families. Getting our priorities right enables us to love our families the way God intended for us to love them. So our nuclear families can become idols, and idols always fall. Of course, there are many things that the devil can use to allure us, to tempt us, to be idols to us. In fact, he could use anything at all. Uh, Sometimes we're too tired or we're too sick to go to church, but we aren't too tired or sick to go to work. Sometimes we're just lazy. Sometimes we're just bored or apathetic. But true communion is hard and disciplined work. Therefore, all sorts of excuses and justifications abound for not doing our duty or fulfilling our responsibilities to the community. We've pledged ourselves to one another. We've pledged ourselves to Christ. This is His community. It's not just our community. This is We are His people. And this is how He chose to do it, is in local congregations. Recall the story Jesus told in Luke 14 about the man who gave a great feast and he sent out invitations. And then we read, but they all with one accord began to make excuses. There were business excuses. There were family excuses. And I'm sure had there been organized children's sports, big entertainment events, or weekend excursions, those would have worked as well. Now, I know, I'll just say this as my disclaimer or uh, my footnote here, I know there are legitimate exceptions to most of what I'm going to have to say. Sometimes we really are sick, and sometimes we must travel, and sometimes our ox is in a ditch, and we must get it out. But I am reminded of what Gary North once said, we may not open an ox retrieval service. So I'm going to pick out one controversial example, 
knowing that other things could be plugged in. But I think this should make us think harder and deeper about those things that might allure us away from the communities that God put us in. God put us in particular communities, in particular churches, just like he put us into particular families. If your child spends every other weekend with another family, it's not the same thing. So the world understands the centrality of community life. And I want to uh, take a, a sidetrack here just for a moment to talk about that. Peter Hitchens, who is the brother of the famous atheist Christopher Hitchens, in his book, uh, Peter Hitchens' book, uh, The Rage Against God, How Atheism Led Me to Faith, offers some telling insights on how the Soviet Union systematically set out to undermine the church community. We should remember that we're still in a life-and-death struggle with Marxist ideology in our own culture, both self-conscious and unconscious. Hitchens cites F.A. McKenzie's book, The Russian Crucifixion, published in 1930, where he lists the provisions of the People's Commissariat Decree on Religious Associations that was issued on April the 8th, 1929. This was an extension of Anatoly Lancharsky's, uh, who, who was a Russian Marxist revolutionary and the first Bolshevik Soviet People's Com- uh, Commissar, his original anti-religious decree that was set out in Janu- on January 23, 1918, which had ended the teaching of religion in schools had disestablished the church and had begun the official campaign against God. Much thought had gone, on, uh, gone into his web of regulations, or this web of regulations. It's systematic cunning. Uh, it's systematic. Cunning malice is frightening and is a form. Uh, it's, a, it's as frightening as open violence is in terms of its effect. Its authors knew exactly where and how to strike, uh, uh, how to bind, and what limits would be the most effective in achieving what it was they wanted to bring about. They knew that decoupling people from their religious community was crucial to their victory. Little by little, if not you, then your children must be pushed or pulled away from the church by regulation, or by temptation. Each religious society, for example, had to be registered. A person might only belong to one such organization, so a church member could not also belong to the YMCA or a student Christian group. Uh, Religious societies might only use one building for worship. Outside preachers were banned. Churches could not use their property for any purposes other than religious purposes, They could not give charity to those outside their own members. The state must have a monopoly of welfare. Special meetings for women, children, and adolescents were banned. Likewise, Bible study groups, book groups, sewing groups, organized excursions, children's playgrounds, libraries, or reading rooms, or any kind of medical assistance. Religious symbols were banned from public buildings. Processions and open-air services were banned. Now, we don't have all of these yet, but we certainly have some of them. 
McKenzie then describes the discussion, discussions in professional magazines for Soviet teachers of how best to destroy the religious instincts among children. Here's what, here's what they said. God in Christ must be treated as equivalent to fairy tale figures, ghosts, and goblins. The church's wealth <clears throat> is then to be discussed and the point made that it would be better spent on repairing roads or buying shoes for children. Uh, saintliness is to be debunked and associated with fraud and fakery. It is alleged that diphtheria can be spread by eating the host at communion and even that the Easter kiss may spread syphilis. All this time, the young are under great pressure to join mixed-sex communist youth leagues, which are, of course, most active on Sundays when church services are being held. Mackenzie states, quote, they are soaked in Marxism, they are taught communist songs, and they sing them as they march along. They are taught to hate priests in country towns. When they see one, they hoot at him. Hitchens continues, but I can't help notice, noticing that youth movements have been hugely important in the political struggles of our age. The Russian communist and the German national socialists both banned scouts and guides, and both Hitler youth and communist pioneers had one thing very much in common. Recru recruits were urged and even ordered to attack the church. Pioneers jeered at priests in the street and even campaigned against Christmas trees. Hitler youths, whose meetings were held at the same time as church services, spied on priests and denounced them for the slightest criticism of the regime. Hitler knew well what he was up to. Those, uh, to those many German adults who refused to follow him, he sneered. And this is central to my point. Here's what he said. When an opponent declares, I will not come over to your side, I say calmly, your child belongs to us already. What are you? You will pass on. Your descendants, however, will stand in the new camp. In a short time, they will know nothing but this new community. Parents who struggle to bring up children to love God and country know already how true this is. How their, young, how their young come home from school stuffed with politically correct equality and diversity rubbish and ignorant of our history and tradition. 21st century America has slightly different tactics so far. So far, they're more subtle. The church is too entrenched to simply outline. In fact, our politicians of all stripes uh, must give lip service to God and the Bible, but this is becoming less and less true. So, a friend of mine wrote me a few years ago, and he asked the following, and now I'm going to be reading a couple, uh, some letters today. This is a little different approach, but I think these are thoughtful and helpful for us to think through this issue. And remember, I'm just using this as an illustration. We could plug in other things as an example so this was written in 2013, and he asked this. Pastor Booth, as you may recall, I was part of a group of men that convened to discuss the biblical, biblical approach to Sabbath-keeping several years back. The result was a number of men who believed that our modern society had pretty much ignored the requirements of the Fourth Commandment 
and that we all needed to implement changes in our lives on Sundays. For example, not engaging in our daily job, not shopping, not eating out, more fellowship together, more helping the poor and the sick, more attention to worship and the Word, etc. Today, there are very few in that group, to my knowledge, that still adhere to that line of thinking. In fact, I can find very few people at all who think this way anywhere. My household has always lived with the understanding that we weren't going to buy gas or groceries on Sunday. We plan long trips on Friday or Saturday, and we pay special attention to worship, family, and fellowship with believers. But aside from the last point, we seem to be very unique, even among Reformed Christians. Did we go overboard with our interpretation and application? So here's the particular rub, he continues, sports. I know we're not prohibited from playing catch or even engaging in a competitive sports team like baseball. I also know that my son's skill level is at his skill level, his options are basically limited playing in tournaments on Sunday or not playing at all. He wants to play at the highest level, and I want to support this goal of his, but I can't see a path toward fulfilling this that doesn't involve playing during church services. I know many Reformed believers who, quote, lament having to, quote, endure the facts of club soccer, club volleyball, and select baseball on Sundays. How are we supposed to handle this? First and foremost, is it breaking the Sabbath to play baseball during worship? Or is it acceptable on occasion, though the preference is for being in church? Is there a point where it becomes too much? And then, what is the right response to professional baseball? Should my son actually make it that far, statistically unlikely, How should we be thinking about playing baseball on a Sunday afternoon? Essentially one's job. My son and I have missed a half a dozen Sundays this year, and the schedule for the fall has several more lined up. I want to lead my household correctly, erring neither to the left or the right. Can you please provide some guidance here, your brother in Christ? So this was my reply some years ago, and so I'm going to read it now. I, too, have been troubled by this, quote, development, and have been gathering my own thoughts along with the thoughts of some others on this subject. Here are some of my thoughts. I understand that this needs much more discussion. We no longer live in a Christian culture, even in the so-called Bible Belt, For example, many Christians have justified keeping their children in their local public schools, not because the schools themselves are Christian, but because other Christian parents, students, and teachers are there, not to mention the important sports programs and so-called opportunities. Note, I am fully aware that there are complexities to some situations. So, too, the extracurricular sports programs are filled with Christians which makes skipping church and other church events almost seem like we're not really skipping. We're having good fellowship, right? Temptation is tough primarily because it's tempting. The communal activity of organized sports, for example, the team itself, the athletes' families, the geography of the field and stands, time together, 
the table fellowship, the snack bar, the liturgy, all stress the need for commitment. If you're going to be part of the club or team, then you need to, you need to be there. All this sounds remarkably like church. Every team requires discipline. So it doesn't matter. So it's not a matter of whether, but which discipline prevails. What we're really faced with is which team has the priority. The coach or the pastor and the sports team and their families, that's the members, will be upset if my kid doesn't show up for the game, especially if my kid is talented. At the same time, the church or pastor or session and the church members feel intimidated about saying anything. We're not supposed to judge. We're to be forgiving and show grace. Pastor Wilson and I discussed this topic, and he commented, quote, Coaches who object when players miss the tournament for church are disciplinarians. Pastors who object the other way are legalists, I guess. I have contended for many years that there is nothing more important that we do each week than worship. Worship on God's terms, not ours. On the first day of the week, we gather around the family table to refocus and renew, to remember who we are and why we're here, and to remember who he is and what he's done for us, covenant renewal. God designed this to be weekly because he thought we needed it. And when we substitute something else for his team event, uh, we have said and told our children that sometimes there are more important things and, by the way, those other things will also refocus our attention and prepare us for a different sort of week and life. Whether this is the message that is intended is irrelevant. It is the message that is sent. This is what liturgy does. It shapes us. Your child or any child's athletic talent, if he or she really has any, is a gift from God and is, also, is always to be used in a manner consistent with glorifying him. General recreation is a good thing, exercise, fun, etc., even for the untalented. Many more people think their children have talent than there are actually talented children. And again, even if they're genuinely gifted athletes, that never justifies a compromise with the unbelieving world. It's the unbelieving world that has no regard for Lord's Day worship. And when we, and when we join in with this, we're supporting their ideas and we are even encouraging them. You get more of what you pay for. The trajectory of the sports idol is to demand more and more worship on its own terms. College and professional sports fuels this idolatry, and the church must be on guard. Athletics are not evil, but men and women are, and the modern profit-driven sports entertainment machine has helped turn, turn it into an idol for many. Think about the resources that are sucked into sports, not only money, but also the time and the energy. 
we give to we give to sports the preoccupation, the discussions, the passion that ought to be reserved for God. We can do that, of course, with recreational pursuits such as hunting and fishing also. When Paul compares the Christian life to running a race, perhaps he's saying what I just said, that we ought to pursue Christ as athletes or as sports aficionados uh, pursue their passions. We take many good things and turn them into bad things. And while they're being turned into bad things, we're usually reminding ourselves and everyone who questions us that the thing itself is a good thing. So let me say it again. Athletics are good, but people are often bad. And when bad people are in charge of athletics, then organized sports often becomes an instrument to promote bad ideas and to capture otherwise good people. The world wants our children, and it and the devil uses every means possible to get them. Organized sports are only one of many possibilities, and again, I'm only addressing, uh, I'm only, I, I, but I'm not addressing those other things at this moment. I was long-winded in this letter, so. Wisdom is always on the lookout. God gave us the church to equip us so that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men and the the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. And this applies to any aspect of sports that is contrary to what God says. There is a theology of athletics and sports. God has an opinion And it's our job to be clear in our understanding of what he says and how he says to apply it. Perhaps a good challenge would be for Christian parents to demonstrate from Scripture the reasons they think God wants them and their children to skip worship to play sports. Professional athletes have become primary role models in our culture, especially for boys. For everyone, Tim Tebow, there are many edgy, hip, and profane athletes demonstrating their version of the good life. Note, I would argue that the Tim Tebows of the professional sports are unintentionally making things worse for the church because they fuel the justifications that many Christian parents are looking for. See, you can be a committed Christian and a professional athlete. All this in heaven, too. Nevertheless... The gangsters uh, take the front row for media attention. The tattoo industry is forever grateful. I don't see how a Christian family would ever want to have a son or daughter make it as a professional athlete. In fact, as it would be fraught with so much temptation to sin, every attempt to avoid it seems called for under the current modus operandi. While the entertainment industry in general including sports, is fraught with some distinctive and intense temptations and sins. We should also remember that most professions have their own temptations and that it's the sinners who have ways of inventing ways to use those professions in idolatrous and destructive ways. Wherever you go, the world, the flesh, and the devil are busy selling you something you don't need. So, Let's assume a Christian husband and wife have bred a super athlete, a baseball prodigy, just what father always wanted to be. 
Their kid is allowed to skip church, and of course the family skips church to show their support, and it's only a few times each year from age 10 to 18. We can't get the team down. Uh, we can't let the team down. And besides, if he doesn't go to the tournaments, then he has he doesn't have a shot at a scholarship. And so he gets the scholarship, and he's off to play a ma- for a major university, where once again he can skip church to keep his scholarship, all in hopes of signing that contract that will make him rich and famous, which is pretty important, though they might not admit it. He hangs out with other Christian athletes and is a leader in the fellowship of Christian athletes. The happy day finally comes, and he's selected in the first-round draft and signs a multimillion-dollar contract, which will require him to be away from his family for many weeks at a time and to play baseball every Sunday. Of course, he never forgets to thank God after the game. Moreover, he will have the satisfaction of knowing that all the folks at his old home church are very proud of him for making it so big. They knew him when he used to come to Sunday school. In fact... They're hoping to get some special tickets for the big game next Sunday. And then I concluded with a famous poem, The Camel's Nose. Once in his shop a workman wrought with languid hand and listless thought, when through the open window space, behold, a camel thrust his face. My nose is cold, he meekly cried. Oh, let me warm it by thy side. Since no denial word was said, in came the nose, in came the head. As sure as sermon follows text, the long excursive neck came next. And then as falls the threatening storm, in leaped the whole ungangly form. Aghast, the owner gazed around and on the rude invader frowned. Convinced as closer still he pressed, there was no room for such a guest. Yet more astonished heard him say, If inconvenienced, go your way, for in this place I choose to stay. O youthful hearts, to gladness born, treat not this Arab lore with scorn. To evil's habits earliest while, lend neither ear nor glance nor smile. Choke the dark fountain ere it flows, nor even admit the camel's nose. Now, going to get a lot of reading to today. I want you to hear another argument which illustrates, I believe, the slippery slope of justifying whatever it is we want to do. This was written by uh, Pete Nicholas. Uh, The title is The Sunday Sports Dilemma, and it was written in 2016, published in uh, Christian in Sports magazine. I'm sorry, Inspire Magazine in the UK. He says, Increasingly, Sunday sports is becoming an issue for Christian children and parents. More and more sport is being organized for Sunday mornings, and this causes a clash with the traditional time for church. It is a problem for parents and pastors alike who find themselves torn between prioritizing children's spiritual growth whilst at the same time encouraging them in, in the sport they are evidently passionate about. They walk a tightrope of different decisions uh, being between, on the one hand, having children who do lots of sports but have no concern for Christ, and on the other hand, children sitting in church resenting it because it is taking 
them away from sport. Does reorganizing church to fit around sport send the wrong signals? If Sunday sport is where we find all the children and parents who aren't Christians, isn't it crazy to disengage from that? What about our spiritual growth as a family? Shouldn't we all be at church together rather than alternating who takes our daughter or son to the game? These are tough questions. It's a tough dilemma. Last week, Christianity Today, a widely read U.S. magazine, published an article by Megan Hill, a mom who is going through this dilemma in real time. Her son is a good young baseball player with Sunday games. In her piece, she wrestled with this problem and concluded, sports are good, it's good for children to use their bodies, to cooperate with others, to compete under authority, and to discipline themselves to perfect a skill, but the triumphs of the playing field are a dim shadow of the true blessings of Sunday. And she continues, our weekly detour to the ball field, instead of showing our children how much we love them, actually promotes a lie. Children are not important in worship. Nothing could be further from the heart of our Lord. Worship will be the unceasing work of eternity. When we shuttle the family minivan from one Sunday game to another, we are actually depriving our children of vital practice time, practice for heaven. Now, that was his um, alluding to her article in Christianity Today. Now we're back to his argument, which is going to go in the opposite direction. He says, clearly, these conclusions had not been easy for her to reach, but they do echo a growing consensus in the church. Hence, how many people retweeted the article link and referenced it in their Facebook status. Tough as it was, we should prioritize spiritual growth and worship and therefore go to church on Sunday and miss Sunday sports. I want to completely agree about the priority of worship. Now, I want you to notice the subtle justification here that is going to take place, or maybe not so subtle, but how it begins. So I want to completely agree about the priority of worship. Children are vitally important to it. The triumphs of the playing field are a dim shadow of it, and we need to help children see how it shapes their whole life. And yet, I want to completely disagree about the conclusions that are reached. Why? Because the conclusions are based on an unfortunate and far too common misunderstanding about worship. Worship does include the corporate gathering of God's people, the church, on Sunday. Or any other day, for that matter, but worship is not confined to this. Jesus Christ and his apostles make it very clear that in the light of his death, resurrection, and the giving of his spirit, Worship encompasses every sphere of life, and that must include sports. Jesus tells the woman at the well that in contrast to worshiping only in a particular location at a particular time, quote, the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. The Apostle Paul famously writes in Romans 12:1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies uh, as, living sacrifice, as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Worship is still tied to the temple, but the new temple of the Holy Spirit, our bodies, not the old temple in Jerusalem, 
Consequently, wherever our bodies go, there is a sphere of worship. Of course, then, the the very bodily activity of sport can be an act of worship if it is offered to God in light of his mercies. Pause and please don't let the profound significance of this really pass you by. Think of the difference it can make to sport. When I, first, when I was first shown that I could play rugby as worship to God, it was like a revolution in my heart. And I have seen the revolution repeated every time someone grasped this. Suddenly, one of my great passions in life was given a dignity and importance that was transformative. Immediately, I started to see how significant my conduct on and off the pitch or the field was. God reclaimed the rugby pitch for his own. What an impact this truth can have on children. And now we come to the crescendo here of his laying this groundwork. The world tells them that Christ is a cultural irrelevance to be kept barred up behind church doors. This tells them that Christ is the Lord of all who claims every sphere of life for his own. The world tells them that their faith is disengaged and worship is an odd activity for a few people. This tells them that their faith is engaged and worship is the normal activity for those made in God's image. The world tells them that heaven is an ethereal existence singing endless choir anthems. This tells them that heaven is a profoundly physical existence where where all things are transformed and renewed. This world, us, our passions, our work, our sport. Rather than retreat from sport to prioritize Sunday worship, we need to engage with, with sport as worship. Have we thought that if we want to prioritize our children's spiritual development, that perhaps one of the best training grounds for this could be on the sports pitch or the sports field? Where better to learn how to love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength than a place where all those facets are put under strain? Where better for the fruit of the Spirit to grow than a place where character flaws are quickly exposed? This is not to fall into the parallel error of thinking the goals of secular sport are somehow seamlessly aligned with Christ. Our engagement must be transformative and that, and, and, that, and that will mean saying no to aspects of sports, the self-exaltation, the professional fouls, the idolatry. But it is to say with C.S. Lewis that, quote, there is no neutral ground in the universe. Every square inch, every second is claimed by God and counterclaimed by Satan. So let us help our children claim this ground for Christ. Now, I wasn't sure how long it was going to take me to get through all that, so I have one more here. And I, I do apologize for reading so much, but I just think this is concise and hopefully helping us think through this issue. So I, now I am going to read, uh, it's a little shorter, the other article that was by Megan Hill that he alluded to, uh, which argues in the other direction. Um, A few weeks ago, our son's baseball team played its last inning, and his coach walked to the bleachers. He wanted to nominate our son for the all-star team. It's a thrill for any boy who loves the game like ours does, a chance for a summer's worth of at-bats, dugout chatter, travel to other towns, and improve skills with games on Sundays. 
This was the first time our family had to confront the issue of Sunday sports, but with three athletic children, it won't be the last. Pastors say children's sports have become the biggest challenge to church attendance for American families. The idea that chariots of fire runner Eric Little made it all the way to the 1924 Olympic Games before being asked to compete on a Sunday seems almost quaint. Today, the littlest t-ball player is routinely expected to show up on Sunday and the, demand, and the demands only escalate as children get older. The Association of Religion Data Archives recently reported that some churches have responded to the loss of families by adding alternative service times on Sundays so church members can attend both sports and worship. Additionally, many churches have increased their offerings of sports-related activities, hoping to appeal to families who prioritize athletic involvement. While churches and parents who endorse Sunday sports may think they've found a solution for their families, postponing worship-focused Sundays until after the season is finished forces, uh, forces children uh, to miss out on the spiritual life lessons they need to learn right now. Uh, for while bodily training is of some value, says 1 Timothy 4.8, Godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Sports are good. It's good for children to use their bodies, to cooperate with others, to compete under authority, to discipline themselves. Uh, this is the part he cited earlier, to perfect a skill. But the triumphs of the playing field are dim, a dim shadow of the true blessings of Sunday. Our sports-centric Sundays take our children out of the place where they can find their closest and most edifying relationships. The fellowship of the church is cross-generational, diverse, and unusual to a world that sees five guys with a baseball as the ultimate expression of teamwork. Christian parents, however, need to consistently allow their children to experience the richness of being knit together with Christ's body. Our weekly detour to the ball field, instead of showing our children how much we love them, actually promotes a lie that children are not important to worship. Nothing could be further from the heart of our Lord who said, Let the little children come to me, for of such is the kingdom of God. The worship of children, of children is not expendable. Their halting notes are just as precious as trained adult voices. When children are not present on Sundays... The whole team of God's people suffers. Our children need to know that the worship they offer is vital. So, I know coming into this, this is, again, in our culture, uh, a very controversial thing. This was not so much so when I was a kid, uh, but it has certainly become that, and I don't see that decreasing. So I've tried to give an overview here of where, obviously, in times past, in communist countries, this was a very self-conscious thing, and I do think it's still a self-conscious thing in our own culture on the part of some, but then it also preys upon others who are not self-conscious about it, who get taken in by every wind of doctrine and don't think through this. And so, especially when things are set up deliberately to be in competition, so let me mention a few other things as an example uh, here so I'm not just picking on sports. Obviously, this could apply to music. It could apply to uh, almost any hobby 
or thing that we, quote, get into. Uh, I remember when we purchased our dog, Hank, uh, and he's an Australian shepherd, and he came out. I bought him from a a fellow over in Athens, and they do agility training. You've seen the dogs that run the obstacle courses. And and so I didn't realize it when I purchased Hank, but the next month... uh, I had gotten a copy of Australian Shepherd magazine, and his grandfather was on the cover uh, for having won a championship. Uh, And as I got to looking at their website and whatever, I realized they spend every weekend at these events. Uh, Somebody asked me, are you going to do do that with him? I said, no, I I go to church. I I can't spend my weekends doing that. It might be fun, might be interesting, a lot of things that way. And that's true of, I mean, woodworking. I mean, it, it's, you could take almost anything. Uh, what happens is the weekend is viewed as, as our time off from work, and it's ours. But the Lord's Day is the Lord's Day. It's not our day. It's for us. It's given to us. It's where we receive tremendous blessing and benefit, but it's not ours to use as we please uh, to do in other pursuits. And so anything that becomes... uh, You think of C.S. Lewis and uh, screw tape letters. You can imagine, um, you know, the discussions that would go on about how to tempt people away from the worship of God. Now, let me say one other thing. One of the other problems is dull worship. So when churches become dull, if, if, if what we're doing isn't real and it doesn't excite us and there's no thrill to it and we're singing, we're mumbling words when we sing and, and there's no joy in our gathering, then, it, then that, that's, that's, the op, that's, that's two things happening. One thing is making us want to not be here. And then there's other things who are drawing us away because it's fun and exciting and thrilling. So we need to recognize the temptations, the allurements, the idolatry that can take place, but we also need to be focused on having a healthy, vibrant, joyful community that gathers not only to worship but to fellowship and feast and, and, and delight in one another's lives together so that this becomes the most desirable place to be. So those, both of those things need to happen. And so, so this is not just about not doing something fun. It's about recognizing that there are many pleasures in life. I want all of the pleasures God's given. There are pleasures that come from simple things, playing a game. And there are, there are pleasures that come from hard things. Hard work. Is a, uh, the, the, the fruit of that is pleasure. And there's only one way to get it, hard work. There's a pleasure that comes from worshiping the true and living God and growing as a Christian and maturing in Christ. That's an eternal pleasure, and I want that one too, and that comes by way of difficulty. It's hard to be a follower of Jesus. All of these things take a certain kind of discipline. And so I want to encourage each of us to think about these things, to be aware of the temptations, and to recognize that what we're in pursuit of are the everlasting pleasures that God 
has given us. Not to the exclusion of all the other things he's given us, but by putting them in the right priority for us and for our children. And that's one of the reasons our culture is in the mess it's in and the church is in the mess that it's in. So, any questions or comments? I've got a couple of minutes here. All right, well, let's pray. Father, we thank you again for your word that sets for us the priorities that we need to have as followers of Jesus. You told us from the very beginning that this was about self-denial first and that we then follow Jesus wherever he says to go. And then, of course, we discover new delights, new joys, things we never expected. And we thank you for helping us put all these things in this world that you made and gave us into the right perspective so that we might enjoy you forever as we enjoy these things that you gave us. Bless us now as we come to worship. In Jesus' name, amen.